For those visiting today, we're going through this book of Daniel and we're getting to some interesting prophetic passages that are in the book that deal with the end and the Antichrist. And you're going to get a glimpse of one today in Daniel chapter 7, verses 15 to 28. So you follow along as I read God's word for us today, Daniel 7, beginning at verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, and which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, and before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boast, and which was larger in appearance than its associates. I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the Highest One, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones, and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High, and wear down the saints of the Highest One, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. At this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me, and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Now one might ask, why in the world would God allow or permit these terrible things to happen to his people? Why would he allow this beast to rise up and do these destructive things to his people? I want you to go back a few pages in your Bibles to Ezekiel, and I want you to go to chapter 39, and I want to show you an answer to that question. There are those that are propagating the idea that God cannot ever do negative things. God does do negative things. He is in sovereign control, even when he allows his people to be under judgment. And in Ezekiel chapter 39, beginning at verse 21, you get an answer to the question, why did God and will God allow such terrible things to happen to Israel? Notice verse 21 of Ezekiel 39. And I shall set my glory among the nations, and all the nations will see my judgment which I have executed, and my hand which I have laid on them. And the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God from that day onward. The nations will know that the house of Israel went into exile for their iniquity because they acted treacherously against me. And I hid my face from them. So I gave them into the hand of their adversaries and all of them fell by the sword. According to their uncleanness and according to their transgressions, I dealt with them and I hid my face from them. 
Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Now I shall restore the fortunes of Jacob, and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I shall be jealous for my holy name. They shall forget their disgrace and all their treachery which they perpetrated against me when they lived securely on their own land with no one to make them afraid. When I bring them back from the peoples and gather them from the lands of their enemies, then I shall be sanctified through them in the sight of many nations. Why did God permit Israel to go through all of these terrible things, to be dominated by these evil powers? Because she transgressed against him. And ultimately, the greatest transgression is when they killed the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow and look to the Lord before we approach it. Father, we thank you for the word, and we pray your blessing on your word today. We pray that you would enable us to see and behold wonderful things and make proper application to our lives from it. And we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Just this past week, someone publicly appealed for help with funds for people of the Gulf Coast. And a passage of scripture was cited, which is found in Matthew 25, which says, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. The person who was using this particular quote was trying to motivate people to give to the cause of helping the people down in the Gulf Coast region. Now, there's no question that we are to be giving people. Paul says, if we have the means and anyone asks us for help, we should try to help. But that passage in Matthew chapter 25 has nothing to do with the United States or people from the Gulf Coast. The fact of the matter is that text is a prophetic passage, which is critical to the nation Israel at the judgment of the nations after the tribulation. Back in 1776, some American preachers, some American politicians, and some ordinary citizens came to Daniel 7, and they interpreted Daniel 7 as a passage that was to be specifically applied to America. They looked at the words in this text, and the thought was, we should take the land. We should establish the kingdom. Daniel 7 is for us. However well-meaning they may have been, Daniel 7 is not about America, and it isn't for us. It's about the nations who will dominate Israel, and it's about the Antichrist. Now, when it comes to the subject of biblical prophecy, there are many who say, well, it really doesn't matter what we believe. The whole main point is that you're saved. It really doesn't matter if the rapture occurs before the tribulation. It really doesn't matter if it occurs in the middle of the tribulation. It really doesn't matter if it occurs after the tribulation or if there really is a millennium. What difference does it make? I've spoken with some people who've actually said, God really doesn't want us to understand prophecy, a book like Revelation. The book is there, but it really isn't there for us to know anything about. If ever there is a passage of scripture that refutes that kind of logic, it's right here. Because what you see is that Daniel was a man who wanted to know everything about God's word, including prophetic things, and he wanted to know those things with precision, especially when they dealt with prophecy. Daniel did not want to live his life in some eschatological fog. Now, when you come to a text of scripture like this one in Daniel 7, this is a great passage of hermeneutics. Daniel did not know exactly how to interpret this vision. He didn't know what the prophetic vision of the beast meant. So what he does is he goes to God and he asks God to give him a precise understanding and an accurate interpretation of the meaning of this. The word of God is only profitable when it is accurately understood. 
God didn't go to the trouble of giving us 66 books so one or two of them could be there hoping we'd never understand it. Daniel had a passion to know every word and understand everything. Daniel was not content with surface-level understanding of the Word of God. And that's the lesson you're going to see here. There's an important principle to be gleaned from this text. And it is, no matter how negative the prophetic message of God may be, those who are right with God have a deep desire to know God's Word precisely, and those people will ask God to give them an accurate understanding and interpretation of that Word. Now, ladies and gentlemen, when you come to these mysterious, beastly visions, it becomes obvious that the Word of God is to be understood. It is understandable. There is a right way to handle the Word. There's a right way to interpret Scripture. But in order for that to happen, prayer must be made to the Lord, asking Him for a true understanding. When you hear someone say, well, the Bible's a book that really cannot be understood, you're not listening to a Daniel type, because Daniel types say the Bible is to be understood, and I want to know it exactly. And when we have a difficult time with a passage of Scripture, we have a difficult time understanding what a text may be speaking about, one of the things we always have the right to do is do what Daniel did. Go to God and ask Him to help us, to give us insight into His Word. Now, as we go down through this text before us this morning, there are four main parts I want to draw to your attention. Part number one, Daniel desires to know the exact meaning of what he'd seen. Notice verses 15 and 16. As for me... Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Now I want you to notice carefully the vision that Daniel had been given by the Lord had left him distressed and alarmed. And what those Hebrew words mean is they left him mentally and emotionally shook by what he'd seen. In other words, the word distress means Daniel was deeply grieving, and the word alarm means that he was very disturbed. When Daniel saw this vision of these beasts, it did not leave him comforting. This was not a comforting vision to Daniel. In fact, the word spirit indicates Daniel's entire personality, his entire being, even the spiritual side of him, was shaken by this vision. When he got these visions from the Lord, these were not spiritual truths that had a positive impact on Daniel. Now, I want you to notice what Daniel did while he's in this state. He's deeply shook by what he's seen. He's alarmed. What Daniel does is in verse 16, I wanted to know the exact interpretation of it. So he goes to the Lord who's allowing all of this to happen and he asks him to give him an exact interpretation of everything. He's asking heavenly powers to permit him to know with precision what he has seen. He does not want to be ignorant of the prophecies that even were so negative. There's a famous line in a movie that was advertised, and the line went this way, you can't handle the truth. Fact of the matter is, when it comes to biblical prophecy, some can't handle the truth. They don't want to know the truth. Just this past week, someone was talking about these storms, and how could God sanction a storm that would actually kill people? God can't do anything like that. We'll just ask Sodom and Gomorrah. Or just ask the whole world that gives evidence of a flood. Just ask Jericho if God can do things that can demolish places. He's God. He can do whatever he wants to do. And people want to quibble with God. This past week there was also a discussion of the global warning. And we've got to do something to stop it. You can't stop it. 
You can talk about it all you want. The fact of the matter is, God reveals in his word in 2 Peter, he's going to burn up this planet. There's nothing that anyone's ever going to do that's going to stop global warning. People don't want to know the truth. They can't handle the truth. And when Daniel saw these negative things, he said, I want to know the truth, and I want to know it precisely. And may I be so bold as to suggest that the thing that brings people out of their depression and their grief the thing that brings people to an emotional stability, no matter what's going on, is a precise understanding of the Word of God. When Daniel found himself in this capacity of being grieved and disturbed, the thing he wanted to know was more and more of the Word of God. And may I suggest that when you find yourself in that state, you're mentally and you're emotionally shot, do what Daniel did. Go to God, ask Him for precise understanding of what's going on in your world, be faithful to Him, get into His Word, and discern what His will is. And ultimately, you'll come out of the depression. Now that brings us to the second part. Daniel describes what he had seen in verses 17 to 22. Now when you look down through these verses, there are three prophetic sights Daniel saw. Prophetic sight number one, he saw four great beasts, who were four kings, they arise from the earth just prior to God's people receiving the kingdom. That's what verses 17 and 18 tell us. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth, but the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all the ages to come. Now, it is stated in this context more than once that God's people ultimately will possess the kingdom. And that Hebrew word possess is one that means there will be a time when God's people have authority and ownership over the earth. But before that happens, there are going to be these four beasts that will be on the scene in dominant power of God's people. Now back in chapter 7 and verse 3, these beasts were said to come from the sea. Down here in verse 17, they're said to come from the earth. What this means, ladies and gentlemen, is that these are Gentile powers... They are literal people, literal Gentile powers that literally reign on earth. God allows them to have their power. They come up in power. They're allowed to have power for a specific period of time just prior to God's people receiving their kingdom. Now Daniel knew that Israel would one day have a kingdom, but prior to that, there would be these earthly Gentile powers who would dominate her, so that's what he's writing about. The second prophetic sight that he gets is Daniel saw a fourth beast that was very unique, verse 19. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its claw of bronze, which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet. It was the fourth beast that really caught Daniel's eye. If I were to ask you today, who's the cruelest man in history? Who'd come into your mind? Who's the most ruthless man who's ever lived in history? Well, perhaps some would say Caligula. Perhaps some would say Nero. Probably most here would maybe say Hitler. Some might be prone to say Stalin, but they don't even compare to this ruthless guy described here. This one is the beast who will be the cruelest man to ever live. It was this fourth beast that Daniel saw in the vision that really captured his eye. He's unique in three ways, and we may use these three ways with a noun that begins with a letter D for alliterative purposes. He was different. The text says he was different than the other beast. He was dreadful. He was more fearful than the other beast, and he was devouring. He was the one who trampled down the remainder with his feet. This fourth beast that Daniel saw in this vision stood out to Daniel as the most ferocious and dominant power ever. 
We do not specifically know who he is, but what we do know is what he is, and we also know what he's going to do. Because that is carefully described in the scriptures. Now that brings us to the third sight that Daniel saw. He saw one horn totally different from the ten, verses 20 to 22. And the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, and before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boast, and which was larger in appearance than its associates, I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints. Now this horn was distinct. Daniel saw this horn as being a distinct horn from the other ten. And he turns his focus on this particular horn. And this horn is none other than the Antichrist. And what we get here is a brief overview of the whole career of the Antichrist. And there are seven distinctions about this horn. Number one, he comes up at the same time that the other ten are in existence. That's what he says in verse 20. The meaning of the ten horns were on its head and the other one which came up. At the time that the ten horns are present, that's when the Antichrist is present. Now these nations will stand side by side. There's never been a time in history where this has happened yet. There have been other powers that have come up. There have been ten emperors that certainly ruled in Rome that you can count. Ten that were ferocious, beastly type of rulers. But they didn't all rule at the same time. These will be ten nations that will be ruling together, standing side by side. And it is out of that that this Antichrist will surface. Now Rome today lives in a fragmented, blended empire in a variety of countries. When Rome split up, the people of Rome went into different countries. There are some living in Great Britain. There are some living in Spain. There are some living in Italy. There are some that have migrated to Turkey and others in North Africa. There's coming a time when all those people are going to be revived. This ten specific nations will be revived. I think right now is in the process of being revived. These are kings who will lead these nations. These kings are clearly that which is predicted in Revelation chapter 13 and 17. They have not come into play yet, but they will. This is the Roman Empire in its final revived stage. And I believe we're nearing that. Just this past week, NATO and the European nations said they want to come together to do their part in the destruction of the Gulf Coast. That's no coincidence. When you have the European nations coming together saying, we want to come into allegiance and alliance with the U.S., there's something going on here of a revival nature. I find it interesting that the History Channel right now is focused on the Roman Empire and Rome being revived and what it did. It was a big, massive, strong, impressive power that just kind of disintegrated and the people just kind of blended into other nations. It was a godless, ruthless power filled with evil corruption and vice. But there is a movement right now that's taking place and all of this stuff that's going on in the world is reviving this European Union which will be a revival of the Roman Empire. The second distinction is the horn comes up when three horns fall. Verse 20 says, he says, three of them fell. Now, this is somewhat of an inconspicuous beginning but this Antichrist is going to surface by uprooting three horns. He's going to take charge of three nations. Three of those ten nations that are going to be standing side by side are going to be controlled by this dictator. And when he does this initially, it apparently will appear to be just in what he does. And let me give you just a bit of possible scenarios that could lead the rest of the world to look at this and say, wow, this is really something. Let's say someone right now surfaced who took out in his political leadership three terrorist nations. 
Nations that are terrorizing the whole world. Nations that Europe stands in fear of. Nations the United States stands in fear of. Let's say someone came on the scene and he took out three of those nations, took them over. The rest of the world would applaud him. They would say, wow, what a great thing he's done. He's taken care of our problem. We don't even have to deal with it anymore because he's done that. That's the kind of thing that will happen that will surface this beast, the Antichrist. There's a third distinction. The horn has eyes. Verse 20 says that he has eyes and a mouth uttering great things. Now when it says he has eyes, this guy's going to surface. He'll look just like a normal human being. When you look at him, he will appear to be charismatic. He'll be persuasive. He'll be intelligent. He'll be a man who looks normal. He's a smooth politician. He'll talk peace, prosperity. He'll talk plenty. He will be a great promoter. He'll be a humanitarian leader. He's going to be a guy who can command the world to do humanitarian kinds of things, but he will be looking at things altogether differently. He'll be satanic. Dr. J. Vernon McGee said back in the 50s, a University of Oklahoma professor traveled through Europe within 10 years of the death and destruction of World War II. This University of Oklahoma professor concluded that by talking to people, they were ripe for a strong leader to surface, like a Hitler or a Napoleon, that could actually restore their nations to the glory and grandeur that they once knew. Well, the Bible says there is one on the way. There is a European leader who's in the shadows. He's called the Antichrist. And he will have eyes and he'll look like a normal politician until he gets his power. The fourth characteristic of him is the horn makes great arrogant boast, his mouth uttering great boast. Now beastly powers have always been arrogant. I mean, let's face it, we've already seen Nebuchadnezzar. He had a little arrogant problem, didn't he? fact of the matter is he's the one who constructed a golden image and people were supposed to bow down to that or be thrown into a fiery furnace. And we know Darius had a little ego problem as well because he threw Daniel in a lion's den because he was praying to a god other than him. This beast is going to be the worst of all. This beast will boast that he can solve world problems. This beast will boast that he can solve crisis in the Middle East. He will boast about himself and he'll boast about himself over God. The Apostle Paul made the same prediction about this Antichrist when he said this man of lawlessness will exalt himself above every so-called God or object of worship. He will actually set himself in the temple of God and say he is God. Alexander the Great that's predicted in this scripture, he deified himself, but he didn't demand the whole world worship him as God. This Antichrist will sit in the temple and demand that he be worshipped as God. Now the fifth distinction is this horn is larger than the other horns, verse 20, which is larger in appearance than its associates. Now that's so interesting because in chapter 7, verse 8, he surfaces as a little horn, but he ends up the largest horn. He ends up with total control. It's interesting that many people today from France and Italy and Spain and Germany want to be called Europeans. In fact, they've gone to a common currency right now in that part of the world called the Euro-dollar. And that euro dollar, I'm convinced, is part of a process to bring together the Roman Empire that ultimately will be dominated and controlled by this one power. This one will rule more than just a country. This one is going to rule the whole world. Now, if you check history, you can discern that there have been two things in history that have always caused people to look for some leader that they would be willing to just submit to. The first one is the threat of war. 
The threat of war is always something that causes people to look to a leader that can defend them, that can command a military power, a military existence, so that they can be protected. The second thing, if you check history, that has always been used prior to the surfacing of a leader is poor economy. Poor economy, and you take those two things that were operative before the surfacing of Adolf Hitler, and you can begin to see how he came into being a leader, a leader in that part of the world. War was threatening them, the economy was terrible, and up steps one who can somehow put some positive emotional charge into a nation. That is exactly what the Antichrist is going to do. He will surface as a little horn. The economy is going to be in terrible shape. There will be threats of war that will be taking place in various parts of the world. And he'll step up as a little horn, but he'll end up the largest horn. The sixth distinction is this horn wages war with God's people and overpowers them. Verse 21, I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. Now this is new information to Daniel. He knew there was going to be a little horn that would rise up, but now he gets some interesting detail he hasn't seen before, and that is, this is hard-hitting truth, this horn is going to go after God's people. Now I believe we're nearing the rapture of the church. And after the rapture of the church, there will be many who will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Most of them are going to be martyred. According to Revelation chapter 6, the Antichrist will slay many of them. In the first half of the tribulation, the first three and a half years, there will be many, many believers, most of whom trusted Christ after the rapture, they're going to be killed for their faith. In the second part of the tribulation, the Antichrist is going to go on a rampage to destroy every Jew. It'll be a worldwide edict to track down every Israeli to kill him. This will be a treacherous time for anybody to be connected to God. It will be a treacherous time to be a Jew. In fact, Zechariah the prophet predicts that only one-third of the Jewish people in the world will survive this. Two-thirds are going to be annihilated by this terrible beast. The seventh distinction is the horn wages war until God judges and gives his kingdom to his people. Look at verse 22. Until the ancient of days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. This is a key moment. This is an important issue. God is going to give his kingdom to his people. He says it in verse 18. He says it here in verse 22. He reaffirms that again in verse 27. Until God gives his kingdom to his people, you can expect there will be war in this world. And war with God's people in this world. And we are a warring world. As one writer said, war is in the heart of people today. You know, even those people who do peace marches and protest, they're at war. What are they at war with? They're war against authority. So they're acting like they're so peace-connected, but they're warring. They're going to war on issues. And I want you to understand something, that God's people are not going to have their kingdom until God changes it. God's the one who's going to make the change. And I want you to know that's going to happen. There's coming a day when God will give his world to his people. It's not going to be given to entertainers, movie stars, it's not going to be given to newscasters or TV or radio talk show hosts. He's not going to give his world to politicians or athletes. He's not going to give his world to CEOs and not rich people. He's going to give it to his people. And the wicked will not have any power at all. There is a day coming in which if you're not one of God's people, you lose. 
There's a day coming when God's people will be given the kingdom. And until that time, God's people can expect to experience war, but nothing like when the Antichrist reigns. Which brings us to the third part. Daniel is given a heavenly interpretation of what he saw, verses 23 to 27. There are seven points of interpretation, most of which we've already touched base with. First of all, the final person power will devour the whole world. Notice verse 23. Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. The first three beasts were limited in their geographical power. But this final beast that will come into power will control the world. He will crush those all over the world who oppose him. And I want you to notice in this verse he's identified as a kingdom. In verse 17 he's identified as a king. This indicates what you have here is a worldwide dictator. And when he says he will devour the whole earth, I assume that also means the United States. I assume that that also has reference to the United States yielding some type of allegiance to this one because he's controlling the world. Secondly, the final person power will arise by subduing three kings. We've already seen that. That's repeated in verse 24. He'll surface by bringing three of the ten world powers under his authority. He starts out being a dictator over three countries. He ends up being a dictator of the world. The third point is the final person power will speak out against God. Verse 25, he will speak out against the Most High and he will wear down the saints. Now that preposition against in Hebrew means he'll actually be at the side of or raise himself to the level of God. Revelation 13, 5-6 says the Antichrist will be blasphemous for 42 months. God will permit him to say and speak and do blasphemous things. He will speak out against God and speak out against Jesus Christ. Fourthly, the final person power will stamp out God's people. Verse 25 says that. He will wear down the saints of the highest one. That's a good way to word it in Hebrew, wear down. He's just going to wear them out, which means most of them are going to get so tired they want to die. Most of them in this tribulation time just say, I want to get out of this world. They're just completely worn down, and they're going to be tracked down all over the world, not having any rest. This will be a worldwide effort to rid the world of God's people, the Jews. Revelation says this beast is empowered by Satan and will pour out his wrath against God's people like a flood. Now we have seen many who have made a mass exodus from New Orleans when it was informed that a hurricane was going to hit. Many did get out. Many didn't, but many did. Fact of the matter is, this will be an unprecedented time when Jews are going to be fleeing all over the world, especially out of Jerusalem. They're going to realize this Antichrist is going to hit them hard and they're going to go on the run and he will wear God's people down. He'll be tracking them down no matter where they go. God's people will be on the run for this period of time. The fifth point is the final person power will be the law for the world for three and a half years. Now look at that statement. It says in verse 25, he will make alterations in times and in law. Now, Time is one year, times is two years, and half a time is half a year, so the total here is three and a half years. But what is recorded for us here is interesting information. This Antichrist will have his own system of law. He'll make up his own laws as he goes along. This includes religious law and worship, as well as political law, as well as civil law. 
In other words, this Antichrist will so control the world that he will abandon all previous systems of government and laws. And for 1260 days, for 42 months, according to Revelation, this Antichrist will be the persecutor of Israel. He will appear to be her friend initially. He will come on the scene saying, I'm a friend of Israel, when in all reality, he is her worst nightmare. He'll reinvent law. He'll make up his own law. Many years ago, I was on a trip out east by motorcycle, and this was before I came to Christ. My hair was long, and I looked like a hippie freak. I was with a friend of mine, and we were going to travel up through the Appalachian Mountains. We stopped to get some gas at a gas station before we head up in the mountains, and a man who was from Detroit happened to own this gas station. He said, boys, I'm going to give you a piece of advice. When you get up in those mountains and you see a speed limit sign that says 25 on your motorcycles, you go 20. If the speed limit says 10, you go 5. He said, I'll tell you why I'm telling you this. Because up there, their people are their own law. And he said, they don't take a liking to people that look like you. And they're likely to do some negative things to you. And the fact of the matter is, you get up into their world and they'll throw away the key and lock you up. So you be very, very careful. Now just imagine what that's going to be like all over the world where the Antichrist is making up his own laws. Only anybody connected to God he's going to track down. He'll change speed limit laws if he wants to. He'll change travel laws. He'll change economy laws. We know he's going to say you can't buy or sell unless you have his mark or unless you're somehow connected to him. That's going to happen. He will be his own law. And the sixth point is, the court of God will judge this beast and take away his power and destroy him. Verse 26, but the court will sit for judgment and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. At the headquarters in the United Nations building in New York City is inscribed on marble a portion of scripture from the book of Isaiah. I want you to see the portion of scripture that's on the marble wall at the headquarters of the United Nations. Just go to Isaiah for a moment. Just back up quickly to Isaiah chapter 2. The portion of the verse of scripture that's at the United Nations building is the last part of verse 4, which says, And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. That's the part of the verse that shows up at the United Nations building. What they leave off is the first part of the verse, which says, And he will judge between the nations and will render decision for many peoples. They leave that out. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, it is not going to be political leaders who are going to bring peace to the world. It is God who will do it. It will be God in the person of Jesus Christ who will come and destroy the power of the evil nations. It will be the second coming of Jesus Christ that will destroy the Antichrist and mean there will be no more wars ever. Billy Graham told one time of an interview that he had with the late Conrad Adenauer who was the Chancellor of West Germany. Chancellor Adenauer once asked Billy Graham a series of questions. He said to him, do you believe Jesus Christ rose again from the dead? Billy Graham said, yes, sir, I do. Chancellor Adenauer said, do you believe that Jesus Christ ascended and is now in heaven? And Billy Graham said, yes, sir, I do. Chancellor Adenauer said, do you believe that Jesus Christ will return and reign on this earth? Do you believe that? And Billy Graham said, yes, sir, I do. And after a pause, Mr. Adenauer said, so do I. If he doesn't, 
There's no hope for this world. If Jesus Christ doesn't come back to stamp out evil, if Jesus Christ doesn't come back to give a kingdom to his people, there's no hope for this world because it's getting more and more wicked. This world is getting diabolically insane. It's more immoral, godless, it's more greedy. What happened when catastrophe hit New Orleans? Some faced with catastrophe got into rape and murder and looting. This is not a world that's becoming better. It's a world that's becoming worse. And it won't get better until Christ comes back the way. The final point that Daniel was given was the sovereignty of God is that which will give God's people God's kingdom. I want you to notice verse 27. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. Ladies and gentlemen, don't miss this. No world government, no League of Nations, no NATO, no United Nations, no European Union will ever give God's people a kingdom. You're never going to see a political power go to bat for Israel to the extent that they say, let's give Israel all her land. That is never going to happen. What you're going to see political powers do is say, let's take more and more of her land and give it to Arab nations. But there is coming a day when the sovereignty of God will come back in the person of Jesus Christ and every nation in the world will honor Israel and it will be God who does that. Now why did God allow Daniel to see that? Because that's what would encourage the people. They would realize that even though there would be time when these beasts would rule over them, there would eventually come a time when those beasts would be eliminated and Israel would be seen as the nation of God. The final part is that Daniel was alarmed and pale and silent about the prophetic revelation. Look at what verse 28 says in ending this section. At this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me, and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. A study of biblical prophecy is not for fanatical speculation. It's for sober reflection. When Daniel thought about the fact of here are these beasts and here's this Antichrist, who's going to so dominate Israel, it left Daniel in that state. In the aftermath of the vision, Daniel's countenance and color changed. Now the tribulation is scary business. And I want you to understand something. The man who just saw this vision is Daniel. This is a man who isn't even afraid to be thrown into a den of lions. There isn't much that intimidated him, but what he saw the Antichrist was going to do did intimidate him. When he saw these beastly powers that were going to reign at this level, so evil, so diabolical for this point of time, it was something that troubled Daniel. And it was very troubling to Daniel. And if you do not know Jesus Christ, it ought to be very troubling to you. Because I want to tell you something. I believe we're very near the beginning of the Great Tribulation. And if this was scary to Daniel just to see it prophetically out there in the future. Think of how scary it's going to be for one who's in it. And if you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you are headed right into this terrible time that Daniel saw. Why not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ right now and escape the wrath of God? May we pray. There's coming a day when all will face the court of God. And if you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as Savior, you need to understand your day in court will be a day you'll lose. 
because you will not go to heaven because you're good or nice or because you think you're as good as the next person or because you think you've tried hard or your works are okay. We've all sinned against God. God isn't going to let any of us in based on our works. That's why his son died. And if you will place all of your faith in his son, Jesus Christ, you'll be saved from all of your sin. Right now in this moment, you pray something like this. God, I'm a sinner. I admit it. I thank you that Jesus died for me. And right now I place all of my faith in him. For those of us who know the Lord, there's a court date coming for us too. Not to determine whether we go to heaven or hell, but to determine whether we gain rewards or lose them. It's the Bema Seat judgment of Christ. I believe both of these hours are drawing nigh. Father, may we have the appetite and the attitude Daniel had as we wait for the events to unfold before us. May we be people who are desirous of a precise understanding of the scriptures. And I thank you for the people of this church because really this church is given to trying to carefully understand scripture. So I thank you for each person who's here who has that bent. And I pray you bless him for it. In Jesus' name, amen.